This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Matt Crane. Now, Matt is a Navy veteran, artist, musician, and a member of the Human Performance Project 7X team. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, volunteering with AmeriCorps, photography, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Matt Crane. Enjoy. Well, Matt, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege. So where on planet Earth are we finding you on this beautiful January day? On planet Earth, I am in Buffalo, New York, one of the most wonderful places in the country to live. And I mean that honestly, not not in jest. If you, if we'd had this conversation two months ago, I probably would have been like, yeah, I used to work upstate New York. It's gorgeous up there and we would have moved on. But I have seen some of the most beautiful stories coming out of Buffalo, specifically the ones that are highlighted are coming from the NFL, your, your team, the Bills. So through the eyes of someone living in Buffalo, talk to me about, you know, that whole community. Cause I see not only the near fatal incident that was, you know, amazing that he didn't pass away on the pitch then, but also some of the incredible altruism from some of these young children that are, you know, battling um, diseases or they just lost a parent. And I'm seeing these players step up and do these most beautiful charitable things. Yes, I mean, bu- Buffalo, we're a resilient people. Um, the weather, I think, has a lot to do with it. And uh, at, at one point in time, the early part of the last century, this Buffalo was a, a major economic hub and it was a pretty substantial um, city power, if you will. Uh, but a lot of manufacturing moved overseas. And when all that happened, like a lot of Rust Belt cities, it kind of imploded. And we have a, been suffering from brain drain ever since. So people leave all the time. But those of us who stay, like the, the populace that is here, there's a there's a certain quality of person that 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 lives here, right? If you get snowed in um, for a good part of the winter time, it's hard. It's hard to be stuck inside, especially when the sun's going down at three thirty p.m. and all these things. And uh, the Buffalo Bills, as much as it's a giant, you know, capitalistic pursuit, and it's it's, it's a huge, huge, huge entity. It's one of the bigger cultural, reliable cultural institutions in Buffalo. 
I'm an artist, so I hate to say that because there's so many wonderful galleries and theaters and, and all kinds of like arts and cultural things happening. But as far as the one push comes to shove, this region really rallies around that team. Um, and we, and it's something that we'll never let go because we want to win. We want, we want to feel like we belong for, because the last hundred years people have been abandoning this place, right? Because of the, the Rust Belt stuff and industries imploding. Um, so none of the news that's coming out of Buffalo this winter has really kind of surprised me for us. It's just sort of business as usual. That's how the region is. Um, but with the advent of social media and stories going going viral, more people get a, a look into what this community is really all about. And everything you see on TV about it is absolutely true. I mean, everybody helps their neighbors shoveling driveways and getting stuck out of the snow. And and it's not just all wintertime stuff, too, but it, they're, they're just tremendous people. Um, and that said, if you come to play football for the Buffalo Bills, we don't have Michelin star restaurants here. We don't have, you know, celebrities swinging from the rafters at some of our clubs here. It's just not that kind of place. It's a very, it's, it's like a borough of New York city kind of tucked way on the Western side of the state. Um, so it's small, it's very neighborhood oriented. So when people come here to play football, it's been my experience as an outsider, as a fan looking in that, you can either go two routes. You can stay isolated and kind of get into the party scene and the shenanigans here. Um, or you could become like a Buffalonian and start just giving back and, and helping out. And there's not much else to do here. So the team, a lot of times kind of rallies in together and they do a lot of activities together and they go out and serve, do service projects and uh, raise money for different charities, um, things like this. So, yeah, it's not been a surprise to see uh, how our region and how the players who are not from Buffalo, but they make their home here now, how they kind of turn into, oh, yeah, this is, you know, if we don't if we don't get each other out of this jam, we're not going to be able to go do our job. And that's true on an NFL level. Like if you have to get to the stadium and everybody's snowed in, but at the same time, everybody that works regular jobs has to get to their jobs. And so that's what I mean about everybody just really helps each other. It's a very socialist type of environment so we talk about the rust belt educate me which industries were in that area 100 years ago uh the the largest would be the steel industry bethlehem steel was a a, a big uh a big economic driver um shipping shipping was a big thing too because the erie canal connected basically the atlantic ocean to the west because you can come through uh, through Buffalo, through the Erie Canal, get into Lake Erie, and then from Lake Erie, you were able to transit the rest of the Great Lakes systems and move westward. A lot of times it was cheaper than rail, various things. Um, so at that point, it was probably shipping, steel, um, textiles was another one as well. Um, There was a, a large soap factory. The, the Larkin Soap Company was a, a pretty massive thing, and, and famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright had built a number of houses for some of the executives there. We actually, speaking of Frank Lloyd Wright, Buffalo's got the, I believe, the largest concentration of his architectural work per capita, I think. Um, but it's 
there's an amazing infrastructure built in Buffalo from the time that it was really settled, settled in the late 1800s in the turn of the last century. And a lot of those things still exist, like the Frederick Law Olmsted Park Systems. You know, that was the same guy that did Central Park and um, the Eiffel Tower Parkway System and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, so it's a Rust Belt city. It's cold and it's and it's dark a lot of the time, but there's a lot of tremendous things to do outside in the uh, summer and spring as well. Now, where did all the industry go to? My my wife is from uh, North Canton, Ohio, and she went to Hoover High School, and there was the Hoover company, the vacuum cleaner company, but they've since gone, and the, the building at the moment, I think, still stands empty. It's refurbished, but still empty, I believe. Um, but when you see some of these places, like Detroit is a perfect example, and you know, in the fire service, they're notorious for running so many fires, but so many of them are abandoned and you know, arson fires. So you see... You know, not only the withdrawal, the impact of withdrawal of industry on a community, but then sometimes the mental health crisis that follows. So, what you know, where did the steel industry go from Buffalo when when it's right next to one of the biggest metropolitan cities on the planet? I'm not exactly sure. I know it got transferred overseas, whether that's that's China or somewhere in Europe. I have no idea, but I know that we've got a number of large buildings and a very large bridge, the Skyway that kind of runs over the uh, Erie Canal or the Buffalo River. And I I believe there was a big stink about that because when they built it, they did not use the steel from the steel plant that was literally half a mile away from the site. They imported everything from overseas. And that was sort of the big tell of, all right, well, if it's cheaper to do that than to, to make everything here, um, that's sort of the beginning cracks of the crumbling of uh, of the industry around here. Um, so it it left, and when it left, it took a whole lot of jobs. Um, my grandfather, he's in his late 80s. Uh, he worked at the steel plant for a while, and like my father growing up, nobody needed to go to college because the steel plant was right there. You you had a factory job waiting for you. So even growing up as a kid in the, in the late 80s and 90s, I was told sort of like with this idea of like, well, you don't necessarily need to go to college because there's industry and there are factory jobs. Well, that that's not the case. <laughs> it's not the case anymore. But um, slowly and slowly but surely, in the last 10, 15 years in Buffalo, a different sort of industry has sort of taken a foothold. Um, the computer and digital space and uh, programming and all that type of work um, has has kind of made its way to Buffalo. And the arts has always been big because of the cost of living here. So it's always attracted very, very interesting and creative people to keep it to keep the city interesting even though there was an economic depression setting in around the 70s beautiful well i want to start on your specific timeline but one more question the sad thing about the media is when something's a shiny object everyone's jumping on it but the moment it dulls a little bit they're on to the next thing so damar hamlin we know that he had the cardiac arrest. We know he survived through the the, the efforts of everyone, you know, the athletic trainers and the, the medics that responded, um, and obviously the people in the hospital that continue care. What is the updates now? I'm sure people at Buffalo are still paying attention, but educate us on how he's doing these days. Um, he, I mean, he's went to the game the other night that we lost, so he's definitely around the locker room. He's mobile, uh, but it's still, uh, I don't know the exact details, but I believe he still has um to work on like breathing exercises and getting his lungs back to to 100 um so he's obviously he's got a 
good system around him and a team of professionals to help him through that process. But, but yeah, Buffalo is kind of very much still on his side and everything like that. And, and I personally believe that the team lost the other night without everything they had going for them as fuel to win. It's just mentally exhausting and emotionally and spiritually exhausting to put up with everything that the team had to put up with this year. Cause DeMar Hamlin was only a small part of it. Um, there was a, a horrible racist shooting in, in the beginning of training camp in Buffalo where a shooter went into the tops specifically to kill black bodies. He drove all the way from the middle of New York state and just went on a rampage. And uh, so our community dealt with that. And, you know, then the, a couple of blizzards this year were well beyond character for Buffalo and, and took I, almost 50 lives, I think was the end sort of tally. Um, and then our tight end Dawson Knox, his younger brother passed away as the team was processing that. And then, um, because of the weather, the team had to move, uh, very quickly to Detroit to play a game and then a game got moved again. So just a very, very challenging time for them, the whole team. And then the last thing was DeMar Hamlin. And I mean, I'm sure with your background, you've, you've seen situations go from totally normal to what what the f is going on right away and that's kind of what a lot of those kids experience and i i say kids those young men and the players you know they sign up to be warriors and to go to war for each other but that at the end of the day they know they're playing a game and that's really just a lot of hype talk for themselves and for somebody in like first responder trades or the military or something like that you expect to see at some point something like that but as a player especially a lot of them are very young. Like that's the first time they've ever experienced anything like that. And it was, I couldn't imagine what that felt like. So uh, I personally give the team all my love and they're an amazing organization. And I feel like we didn't win the Super Bowl, but the team and the coaching and the leadership, they won the game of stick to I guess, or, or heart. Right. Um, just a, a tremendous organization. I know the goal is to win championships, but the the human aspect of that team is very inspiring. Um, championship or not, I think they. I still think they won the season. Absolutely, and I think it's, it's it kind of parallels a conversation I have a lot with the whole um, participation trophy conversation. I totally understand that there are some extremes where everyone gets a trophy for you know doing no effort no work or anything but the reality is the other 99 percent of kids that are out there are playing a sport and only one team is going to win and i think what was powerful about that particular incident as well as as you said i mean you watch these hulks of men just absolutely crushed emotionally and i think that was a very powerful visual for a lot of people um to see that it kind of you know d demyth that kind of facade of masculinity yes these guys are warriors but they're men they're human beings but also like you said at the end of the day what was more impressive the the community that you know engulfed that team when they were going through that or winning a super bowl ring i would argue the 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 former rather than latter personally yes yeah 100 percent. and and the power of these hulks of men as you as you put it kind of breaking down into one knee and, and crying very visibly and letting their emotions truly out. I didn't get to see that as a kid growing up. I never saw men cry at all. I didn't see men cry on TV. I didn't see men cry in my own house. 
it was, you know, so you, I grew up, it just intrinsically like, well, that's not okay to do. You can't like, don't let them catch you crying. Um, since then, a lot of therapy years later and having children of my own, like I, I cry at the drop of a hat these days and I'm not, I feel no shame about that, but it like my kids, my, my youngest is six and he's watching sports with me now. And he wasn't watching that game, but, uh, a lot of other kids were, and they really got to see that. It, yeah, it's okay. Like that, this is a tragedy. Um, please ask for help. Please never feel ashamed of how you're feeling. I mean, that's the number one, like never feel shame about what you're feeling. Um, yeah, just like, just acknowledging, acknowledging pain is, is a huge step forward to, to healing that pain. Absolutely. We talked about your own home with no one crying. So let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Okay. I don't know if we got enough time for this. So, um, okay. Uh, so my, both my parents are from Buffalo, New York. I was born in Kissimmee, Florida. However, that's down the street um, from me. Okay. Yeah. So Humana hospital. That's where I was born. Um, I don't know if it's still there, but so both my parents are from, uh, Buffalo, New York, and they did not know each other. I'm pretty sure they kind of randomly bumped into each other in Florida on a spring break type scenario and kind of met. And then came back to Buffalo. There was a relationship and then they moved back down to Florida. And then I was born. My mother already had two other kids, however, at that point. So at this point, when I was born, there was three of us. I had two older sisters and myself. And uh, we moved to Buffalo, back to Buffalo when I was probably only a couple of weeks old, maybe a month old. Uh, I'm not really sure. So for all intents and purposes, I'm born and raised in, I was raised in Buffalo. And, uh, yeah, so my parents never married. Um, they tried living together for a little bit and that just sort of didn't work out. My, my father, my, my father, I love him to death, but he didn't have a dad in his life growing up. So he didn't exactly know. He didn't have an instruction manual or even a reference deck, right? Like it was just, okay, well, whatever. So, um, when my parents separated, I lived with my mother which is pretty much typically the case and my two sisters. And, and uh, I'm not sure what she was doing. She bartended a little bit. She, I think waitressed a few times. She didn't make a whole lot of money. And my father at that time was a tractor trailer, a diesel mechanic uh, working on trucks. Um, so he made a, a pretty good living as far as uh, blue collar jobs go. Um, so we weren't destitute, but we were not middle-class. I would say as far as um, the family dynamic goes. Uh, so food stamps and like social welfare programs was very much in my, in my background. Um, moved around quite a bit from the city of Buffalo to Lackawanna to some towns around the uh, outskirts of those two. Um, yeah. And, and I think uh, I thought I grew up a normal kid until I, I graduated high school and I got into the, the service and eventually stationed out, you know, out of state in a couple of places. And once I left my home as a 17, 18 year old kid, I really realized like, oh, wow, I grew up a little differently than a lot of other people. Uh, you know, there was, there was no therapy or anything like that in the house. It was, you know, fly off the handle rage and anger for my mother. 
my dad, not so much. He was kind of like very even keeled, which was disturbing in an, in a different way because I was so emotional and I still am. Maybe, um, maybe it's the artist in me. I'm a little bit more sensitive to uh, in, inputs and impulses and things. Um, but my father never getting too excitable kind of bothered me because that was so like anything could get me going. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty typical in that, like, you know, I didn't have any real traumatic abuses or anything like that. Um, just went, learned from an early age of like, well, be creative and we don't have a lot. So what we do have, uh, figure out a way to play with this and and make it fun and make it interesting. So, um, I don't know. And then in that regard too, there was no internet or anything, uh, when I was growing up, at least in, in everybody's household, like one computer at our school would have the internet on it. Um, so we had the encyclopedia, encyclopedia Britannica collection. And right when I just started to learn how to read, that's kind of what I did to pass time. I was like, I would ask my mom a million questions because I was really inquisitive and there was no Google. So she'd be like, go look it up in the books. So a lot of my time as a young, young person was spent kind of, uh, alone because I had two older sisters and, uh, and reading and drawing and kind of just staying in my own imagination. And then, uh, about the time I got into middle school, my mother remarried. And when she remarried, I think I was maybe 12, just like a prepubescent boy and starting to really change from like a little boy into the man I eventually would become. And, and that transition, um, it's a little wonky. We all know. Um, but the fact that my mom started dating uh, a police officer was sort of a big, was a big change. Like, at one hand, it was super awesome and exciting and interesting. But on the other hand, I was starting to enter that rebellious phase. And it was kind of like, well, I don't know how to really handle this. <laughs> um, so we bumped heads quite a bit, my stepdad and I. And also because my, my, my biological father is still in my life. So, you know, that's dad, right? I don't want to have to call this other guy dad. And nor was I made to. I wasn't made to do anything like that. But um. So, yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic there. And as much as it was like a love hate relationship with, with my stepfather. Um, but eventually what, growing up and looking back, like, okay, maybe his political views and moral views weren't exactly, uh, wouldn't exactly fit into today's landscape and things like that. But I watched him save somebody's life once right in front of me. So, you know, who cares what his opinions are? He has skills that matter in the real world. So that was a, that was a big thing for me and being like, okay, I don't have to like this guy, but I do respect him. I respect him greatly. Um, and he's got likable qualities, funny stuff like that. But, uh, that was all, I got that now. I didn't have all that figured out when I was a kid. So it was more when I was at that age, a lot more pushback. When you look back now at, a stepfather who's a police officer because I, I had the same exact situation my bonus boy i called him my stepson has his dad as well so i never you know made him call me dad and I, you know and, and the same as the other way um but now we're about to embark on this project that is you know the nucleus of that is mental health and suicide were there any ripple effects from his service as a police officer that you kind of recognize now as some of his traits that you were dealing with when you were in your teens 
Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, he was a very big guy. I think he was six, four or something like that. Um, but when my mother had first met him, uh, he was in reasonable shape, but as the years went on and he was always had to do some kind of overnight swing thing once a month and his sleep schedule would get all jacked up. I kind of just watched his belly grow. Right. And I kind of watched everything get a little looser and stuff like that. But not only that, the swing weeks when things would kind of change, or there was a couple days of transition on both ends of that, you know, he just didn't have the bandwidth or the really the patience or the tools to handle, you know, like there were six kids in the house at that point. Cause when my mother married him, he had three children of his own and my mom had three. So the joke was we were the Brady bunch. Um, but unlike Mike Seaver, Mr. Seaver, whoever, whatever his name was, yeah, he worked these crazy jobs and, um, we weren't, he wasn't working in the city. So his volume of calls was not as high, but there was a lot of domestics and a lot of drug and low income type of, uh, white poverty type of crimes. Um, so a lot of domestic, a lot of domestic stuff. That's always, to me, that would be the most scary thing to ever walk in, walk into personally. Uh, but yeah, like his, you know, he, there would be anger outbreaks of anger and stuff like that. There was never, I don't remember him going to counseling of, of any kind at any point. Um, and before he was a police officer, he was a, a volunteer firefighter. And there, I mean, I've heard stories of some of the horrific things he saw just during that short time he did that. Um, so, so yeah, there was definitely, there was definitely tools that could have been utilized to sort of probably help him um, live a, I wouldn't, I don't think he was unhappy, but live a better quality uh, life at that point. You know, he's 40s. 40s and 50s um could have been maybe a little leaner a little bit more nimble <laughs> but you know it's buffalo the other thing i was saying too is that it's buffalo there's a lot of draft beer and pizza and you know like i haven't been able to run the last few days i say that like haven't been able to i choose not to because it's icy uneven and like i don't want to roll my ankle blow my knee out just to get some cardio done so i'll do my stairs a bunch of times if i have to so there's that part of it too like you know, I don't know if the precinct he worked for had any kind of gym inside the building. Um, I've been in there a few times. It's not to my recollection. Uh, perhaps they did. Perhaps they got memberships. I'm not really sure. But but yeah, definitely looking back, there's a lot, a lot of stress, physical, emotional stress on his uh, on his body and spirit, unaddressed. Yeah, I think that's what we see with, you know, so many people. And this is the stigma that we're trying to break even to this day. You know, there's always, oh, you know, it's how we used to do it. We were fine. And then you hear these stories like, no, you weren't fine. This is the problem. Um, so with your journey, um, you ended up in the arts. You ended up with music and photography and, and actual, you know, fine art. When you were having to be an imaginative when you were you know younger, did you find yourself in, immersed in any of those at that point? Or did you find that later in life? I did in a different way, comic books, <laughs> just kind of the gateway, the gateway for a lot of us. Uh, um, Batman, Superman, the, the Marvel stuff. Um, I used to like to draw Captain America a lot. Uh, a lot of my family had served in the, in the military. So um, just Captain America was just awesome. Uh, 
So I would draw a lot of those types of things and I never really, I don't know, nobody really ever commented on it. I, I just did it because it was nice. And, you know, sometimes my mom would be like, oh, attaboy, you know, that kind of stuff. So getting validation um, was kind of a part of that when I was younger. It didn't really move me to my core until I was like through puberty though. Like once I became like an adult and, and, and honestly, once I experienced some heavy trauma of my own, then I was like, Oh, okay. This is a way I can communicate thoughts and feelings without necessarily talking about them. Because again, like I, I grew up as a kid, not really in that place where like you talk about what's going on and this and that you just, as a man, you push it down and you, you put it on that Bill Burr's got a joke like that. You just put it on that shelf of regret until the take breaks into a heart attack, you know? Um, but that's heavy for a young person, you know, a kid. So I found that art and drawing and uh, making silly songs and stuff like that kind of helped me get thoughts and emotions and things I was ruminating on. Um, out, just out it didn't nobody even had to see what i had done but it's just like getting it out of my my spirit it was almost a way of like acknowledging it like i said earlier you can't really heal until you acknowledge there's something something's off right something's wrong um so i think that's kind of where art fit into into my life now you mentioned the trauma was that pre-military or post or during pre this was pre-military um I think I might've been eight or nine years old and I was just going for a walk with my cousin. My cousin who I was on this walk with as a kid was, his name is Jeremy. We were best friends for a really long time growing up. Uh, he eventually took his life or, or died of an overdose, gray areas to either or. Um, but when we were eight or nine, we were walking along the Erie Basin Marina in Buffalo. And uh, it's just a lot of big rocks. Um, the form of marina walls and stuff like that so we're walking along the rocks and he's like what's that floating over there and he's like it looks like a sleeping bag and i'm nine or some 10 or something i'm like oh that's a body that's a body and my uncle was probably 100 yards behind us and he heard what we were talking about he's like ah just just keep going you know like that's that's nothing it's just trash don't worry about it I was too curious, right? So we book it. As soon as we heard that like flutter in his voice, we're gone. So we ran down to this thing, got a stick, flipped this guy over, just foam, bile, his eyelids were eaten off. Like he's been bobbing around in the water for God knows how long. It must have been April, about April time frame, because they said that he had tried to walk across the frozen lake for one reason or another, probably fell in. Um but you die, you sink, and then all those gases in your belly start to kind of expand and things like that. So it takes a while for a body to float. So the, by the time we had saw him, he was pretty nasty. Uh, so that was kind of the first traumatic thing that I had seen is that it was just the slow-mo. It wasn't the face down body that bothered me. It was like once we decided to flip him over and saw his face and like it was a black man, but he had lost like all the color and it was like this charcoal white sort of color. And then there was like it's yellow bile coming out of his nose and mouth it was really nasty so that definitely was an image that stuck with me but then the other side was is we didn't have cell phones or anything this was like 1992 or something and uh so my uncle had to walk us down to like the security shack and we had to wait like 25 minutes for the police to come and they had to question him so we couldn't leave the scene really <laughs> so we just kind of had to stay there hanging around um 
So that made a huge impact on me. And again, like, you know, there was no, like, I didn't go see anybody to talk about this experience. Like the seat's like crazy to me now. Like the first thing I would take my son to go do is like, hey, we're going to go talk to somebody about this. You know, like just let, let's figure out what you saw. None of that, none of that whatsoever. It was just like, all right, go. And that, that's about the same time period that I had moved in with uh, my my stepdad, who my would be stepdad at the time. So I was already in this life transition of moving from one town to another, new school, new kids. I didn't really meet any friends yet. That's why I was hanging out with my cousin at the time, because he was in a different school district. So yeah, that was a pre-military trauma. There was a couple other things that happened too before I actually entered. But again, it's only hindsight that tells me that these were traumatic experiences. Um, I uh, I have a newsletter that I write, and it's, I only got two issues out right now. But the second issue is talking about this ex- experience, finding this body. Um, but yeah, I didn't know it was trauma at the time. And and the fact that I still, the the eyelids being eaten off, like I, that's a visceral image. And it will probably be with me to the rest of my, for the rest of my life. Um, but again, that's, that didn't peek it away of being like, there's something we should talk about. So I've since discussed it in great detail and worked my way through it. There was, who was this guy? What happened to him? All these questions. Did he have any family? Never knew the answers to those. Acceptance was really the ultimate thing that um, I found I was able to do without help, but it took a long time. So talk to me then how are evolved as you talk about processing trauma you talk about putting it out there you know what when when did you kind of get to that point where you realized that a this was healing for you but b that you actually had a you know a a gift when it came to the arts as well um i was in high school and i was i was pretty good at school in that I wasn't like a good model student like i never did my homework or anything i was disruptive and talking in class but I was the type of kid who could just listen to the teacher and that's all I needed. Like I could retain, even if I'm having a conversation, I can retain the bits and pieces and put it all together on a test. Um, so that, that was that, but I often had to go to, to summer school and things because you're supposed to pass the class and the exam. And I would only ever pass the exam because I never turned in homework, but, but art was something I never, it was never a chore. So I took all these electives, all these art electives whenever I could painting. Uh, I took two years of photography. That's where I, that's kind of my only, like when I went to college, eventually I didn't study art. Like the art education I got was just strictly from high school, just four years of taking art electives. And uh, it really set me on a good pace. And I remember in my first year painting, I painted for probably two or three years with Bob Ross, like oil painting sets. Cause Bob Ross was on TV and that guy was awesome. So but once I got to high school, I realized like, oh, this is a thing and people go to college for this and uh, this could be a, something I could study. And it became really intriguing in that like, I didn't want to go home and do math problems every day. I, I, I wanted to be an astronaut, right? I wanted to fly rockets and do all that stuff. But the amount of work I saw was immediately a turnoff. I'm like, well, I could do that, but I don't want to, right? Um, but when I saw like started doing artwork and getting assignments for that. I couldn't wait to go home with my 35 millimeter camera and and go do my photo assignments. Like it was like, that's something I would cancel my plans with my friends to go do that. And that's kind of, I was like, Oh, this is pretty important to me. But then a classmate was killed. Um, My school is cursed. Like 
every year I was in high school, a bunch of us died because Buffalo has a serious drinking problem and there's a serious underage drinking problem. It's just a huge part of the culture here is alcoholism. Um, and I was sort of no different from that. Um, so one of my friends, this was a non, my friend, uh, Lindsay Gardner, she had died in a tragic car accident, uh, was not a drinking and driving accident or anything like that. Um, not to confuse anything. Um, but that was, uh, that was a pretty big loss and her next door neighbor, his name was Justin was one of my really good friends. I drove him to school every day. He eventually died. And, uh, so I made a painting um after Lindsay had died and it was a big oil painting with it was all green like green skin on this body with a huge cracked skull and blood coming out but it was done in the vein of more of like Picasso's sort of middle period so it was a recognizable image but more of an abstract more of an abstraction type of image and then it got picked up for like a group show at a, at a local gallery and I was like oh they're going to show this to people. Like, why would you want to show that to people? It's a hideous painting. It's, it's full of my trauma and my pain. Why would you want to do that? So I was very uncomfortable with it um, because it, I didn't make it for that reason. Right. And I struggle with this still as an artist, like people want the work you make, but it's like, I don't really make it for you. <laughs> you know, like, like I stopped playing music live because that's not why I started playing music in the first place. Like I didn't, it's not to entertain you. This is strictly to entertain me. Um, but no, it was, it was a somewhere around high school where I, I found that, okay, I, I can actually express myself. I can get these crazy feelings out of my gut um, and just get it out into the world. Beautiful. Well, you know, you talk about making money later in life when you were in the high school age, were there any professions that you were dreaming of apart from being an astronaut? Oh, yes. Uh, probably more so. I probably wanted to be like a snowboarder or a professional skateboarder. That's that's kind of, I loved all those skate videos and Thrasher magazine and, you know, the punk rock culture, that whole thing. I didn't want to grow up. So like the realistic side of me was like, well, I'm probably not going to be doing any of that. But um, so, yeah, things like extreme sports and music, like, okay, I could be a, I could be a rock star. That's easy. I'll just go do that. <laughs> so there was no real solid, solid sort of plan. That's kind of why the whole time, like since uh, my, one of my older cousins fought as a Marine in desert storm. And my grandmother had his Marine Corps photo on the, on top of the, the old swivel council television. And I pretty much from that point forward, when he came home, there was this huge, like he was the most important person in the world, like welcome home party. And I was like, Oh, I, that's what I'm going to do. Like, that's easy. That's the kind of attention I want. That's the kind of respect I want, like all this stuff, you know, young person's ego, not deserving anything yet, but that's how I felt. So in the back of my mind, I kind of always knew the military was going to be there. So I was like, not too worried about developing a, a skill set or a, a trajectory towards a profession at that point. Um, I just had a, and I still am very hobby heavy. So I'm very interested in a lot of different things that i can do and make with my hands um so that that's what sort of pushed me into the navy beautiful well walk me through your journey into the navy and how you met ryan parrot yes sir all right so like i said i kind of knew i kind of knew that the military was going to be my thing but i was also applying to art schools as well 
and I was trying to get a lacrosse scholarship. I, I love lacrosse. It was a, a big passion as, of mine as well. And that was also something I thought I could probably do. But it meant four more years of college. And I just, I was not looking forward to doing any more school. Um, but I knew I wanted to be physical. I knew I wanted to be active. Everybody I saw coming home from college and the grades above me came back 10 pounds heavier. And I just didn't want, for whatever reason, I just didn't want that. Um, so some of my friends went to the army recruiter and I would pop in. I was like, mm, and then, you know, you go see the Marine Corps recruiter and like, oh, let's teach you how to kill a guy in three seconds. And it's like, all right, slow down. Like <laughs> you're sitting here in Hamburg, New York, you're not doing anything. Um, but then I talked to the Navy and this was pre-September 11th, right? This was 2000, 2001 at the time. Um, I think August, it was about August, 2001. I hadn't started my school year yet, but I went into the Navy recruiter and they had this big map on the wall with pins put in all over the place, like covering this thing. And I was like, well, what's that? They're like, that's, these are all the places that people we've come through this office have gone. I was like, what? Like, yeah, we travel more than everybody. I was like, you just stop right there. Sign me up. I am in. Because <laughs> uh, my father, my whole life lived on right on Lake Erie. He's got 20 foot of grass in the back and then it's a drop into the lake. So like I literally lived on the lake. So boating, we always had boats and stuff like that. And it was a big part of my life. Um, so I, I liked what the, the Navy recruiter had to say. Uh, went and did my ASVAB and did my entrance exams and stuff and had a lot of opportunities as far as jobs that I could pick. Um, and being a musician at that point, I was playing with amplifiers and, and radios and dubbing tapes and, you know, just getting creative with that sort of stuff. So electronics was always something that piqued my curiosity. Uh, so I decided to be an avionics electronics technician. Uh, so working on radar altimeters, communication systems for aircraft, that sort of stuff. And then uh, that put me into basic training at Great Lakes, Illinois. And then after that, I went down to Pensacola, Florida, which was your first school um, for basically like technical Navy aviation training skills, Naval Aviation Tra Technical Training Center. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. Uh, so a lot of different people that work on aircraft go through this school in Pensacola. And uh, my school was, it's a nerd school. So I was in it for a long time. I think my whole first year of enlistment was spent in school doing differential equations and horrible calculus, stuff like that. Uh, so I was at this in my barracks for probably two or three weeks without a roommate, which is kind of unheard of. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I got my own room on this huge campus uh, and this is just beautiful. And then I get back from class one day and there's this guy, short guy, shaved head, just wound like a, a super tight rubber band, just full of energy, bouncing off all the walls. Just, it was awesome. It was Ryan Parrott. <laughs> so <laughs> I meet this guy. I'm like, hey, I'm Matt. I guess we're roommates, this and that. What are you here to go to school for? He goes, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> so tradition would have it. I just laughed. I'm like, aha, that's funny. Cool. Well, what, what are you going to do if you don't make that? Like, what's your, why are you here at this school? Right. He's like, I don't know. I'm going to do a, they make, they're making me do AO or something, which is aviation ordinance, you know, hooking up bombs to aircraft and stuff. 
And I was like, okay, uh, so you're going to be a seal. And he's like, yeah, definitely. That's I'm 100% going to make it. And I was like, all right, we'll see. Uh, so I think later that day or even the next morning, he's like, you want to get up and train with me? And I was like, yeah, okay. I, I was pretty fit. I've been playing sports for 10 years at that point, And I really liked PT and, uh, I went to go run with him and it was pretty evident from the clip he started at. I was like, I'm not going to, this is not going to go well <laughs> for me. Cause like, this is like my mid sprint, right? He's just cooking. So then he takes us down onto the beach and we start running in the sand. And that's where I was like, okay, this is like, I'm a track pavement, really just chill, do it. Cause I have to kind of runner. I don't enjoy it. Um, and he's picking up logs and he's just doing all the stuff that you saw on like the old discovery channel buds videos. Right. Um, so he was doing all that sort of stuff. And I just kind of knew it at that point, like this guy is different. He's special. He's, he's, uh, he's so focused. That was the thing I remembered, like, like talking to you this whole lead up, I've been saying like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do this, but I liked all these things. I'm very hobby heavy. I'm very wishy-washy and, fussy fussy right so what impressed me about him was his laser focus he was so focused and determined he had one end goal in his mind and uh i really just i believed him more than i'd believed anybody ever in life um so we became pretty good friends and uh i had friends kind of all over the place at that time i don't i don't know why i just i had friends in tampa and other parts of florida so one point I was like, you want to dip out for, we had a long weekend or something like Monday was like a holiday or something. So we had a long weekend. I was like, do you want to run down to like Panama city or go down to Tampa? Something like that. I'll meet you to introduce you to some of my friends. He was like, sure. So we would do that kind of stuff and go hang out with my friends. And he eventually started dating one of my friends, Cassie, who was a uh, base jumper herself, pretty, um, pretty qualified flyer in her own right. And, uh, yeah, we've been kind of friends since then. We, I mean, we obviously lost touch along the way, but that happens quite a bit. So that was me and Ryan. Walk me through your time in the Navy and then ultimately what made you transition out? Um, I could, I could start kind of with what made me transition out. So I swore in Buffalo, New York. I swore in in front of the judge to September 9th, 2001. So I swore in two days before the twin, twin towers were struck. So I had joined the Navy under a completely different context, right? I had been looking for college money because I knew I would want to do it eventually. Just, I wasn't ready for it right then. I was looking to get life experience to travel the world to just get out and and work i knew i could work hard and that's kind of all i wanted to do like somebody just tell me to put my nose down and do this job and i was like i could do that that's easy um so when the towers were hit there was immediately like this big anti-muslim sentiment that kind of just rippled throughout the country um and it was pretty intense and i had grown up having muslim friends um the first school i was going to was a huge part of it was a lot of kuwaiti refugees from the first uh from the the first gulf war um so i didn't understand hating these people <laughs> like it didn't make any sense to me like some of the coolest people i know man um so there was a racial 
and sort of a Islamophobic aspect of it, like, okay. And it wasn't even the policy. It was more like who I ended up in basic training with. Like a lot of the characters were like hell bent and out for blood, not necessarily even knowing why or anything like that. And that's kind of was like, okay, I don't, I don't see myself fitting into this picture, but you know, I grew up with integrity as a strong value. So I was like, well, I signed my name on this and I'm going to do my four years and you know, I don't have to like it, but I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability. I'm not going to put anybody at risk. I will, I will crush my job. I'll be awesome at it. I don't have to like it, but I'll, but I will do it. Um, so when it came time to get out, it was, it crossed my mind, but I was like, eh, I'm done. I'm done. I want to go be an artist and, um, play music and stuff like that. Uh, but my time in, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was, I mean, I, I say, I always say I only, I only did four years, but that four years was so packed full of adventure. Um, you got to think like from 2002 to 2006, the operational tempo that we all had was insane. Um, if I wasn't deployed, we were working up to be deployed. Uh, and that's just all, all it was. It was just here to there to there, different, like different detachments. Cause I was a part of a H 60 squadron. So the Navy's version of the Black Hawk, the Seahawk helicopter, that's the platform I was on. And that's a forward mobile type of unit. You know, you could, you could travel with an aircraft carrier, but once you get close enough to land, you could forward deploy a smaller group of people inland all over the world. And, and that's what we did. We did it in Guam and we did it in Kuwait. Um, you know, it's, it's just the benefits of having a mobile platform like that. So it was, it was very busy and I didn't have a lot of time to think about art or music or anything like that. It always still burned in me. Um, I didn't do a lot of reading. It was honestly just the amount of physical exhaustion and stuff just kind of kept me a little bit detached from this one modality I had to make sense of the world and healing and, and making it through. Right. And to reset was, was the art. I didn't really have that. Um, I did have my guitar and I did play in a band. We had a little bluegrass band. I played mandolin in. Um, so there was there was still the ability to tell stories through song and stuff like that, which was good, but nothing like hardcore creative for myself. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was awesome. It was really 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 cool experience. We I got to circumnavigate the globe. So I, for our 2005 deployment, we ended up on the USS Carl Vinson. And it had to, at the end of that deployment, it had to dry dock in Virginia for repairs. That meant, so we were going to leave San Diego and go all the way around the globe and come back to Norfolk. It's a rare thing. Uh, I happened to be on that deployment. So it was very cool to do. Um, and not only that, once we pulled into Virginia, I was a part of the air crew that got to fly all seven aircraft of our aircraft across country back to San Diego. So I got to roll in a convoy of H-60 aircrafts for, it took us three, like three days to sort of leapfrog across basically Interstate 10 all the way across the bottom half of the country. Um, so that was another cool experience I got to do. Like for a sailor, I got a lot of flight time and I got time in the sand in Kuwait. Like I went to Iraq once to Basra uh, for only for a couple of hours, but like these are cool opportunities I just happen to fall into. Um I say happen to fall into, I don't give myself credit. It was whenever there was a school or an opportunity to learn a new like sub trade in the unit. Like I was always the first to raise my hand. Um, number one, it got me out of monotonous duty. 
like having to wash a helicopter. Like, oh, I can't do that. I have this school. It was just stuff like that. But it paid off eventually because I got a lot more trust put on me. I got a lot more responsibility put on me. And it felt good. I was 21 at the time and I had a ton of responsibility and it was, and it was really great. Uh, I, that came tumbling down though when I left and got out and went into the civilian world where nobody gives a shit what kind of responsibility you had. Nobody cares at all where you've been and what kind of um, working environments you've been into. So that was a big, uh, see, I had to take an audible deep breath there. <laughs> that was a big, that was a big transition. Like, you know, the first blood movie is so amazing. And they, they nail it when he's just like, I have all these responsibilities. John Rambo was talking about his time in Vietnam. And he's like, I come back here and I'm nothing. Like, I don't think people realize how true that is. Like, that is just the way it was. I was not even close to John Rambo, right? Like, but I still came back and was a nobody, right? I had nothing. Nobody cared. There's a big disconnect about what's even service, even local community service. People don't even know what that is anymore. So, yeah. So that was a big, uh, a big adjustment getting out of the Navy. It was harder getting out than going in and getting adjusted to the lifestyle. Like readjusting to civilian lifestyle is way more difficult. Well, I want to get to that because that is a sticking point for a lot of people. And it's the same leaving, you know, fire, police, EMS as well. Just before we do, you had a very unique lens where you weren't, you know, deployed forward as far as on the boots on the ground, but you also are still interacting with all these troops that are. What was your perspective of the impact of this conflict of the men and women that were kind of circulating through the vehicles and, and uh, aircraft that you're working on? Uh... I hate that this is the first thing that pops in my my mind, but but humor, humor was something that was pervasive through everything, and it wasn't really guys weren't really guys and girls weren't necessarily talking about what was going on and, and things like that, but it was always like movie quote references that were funny, like Team America World Police had just come out before <laughs> our deployment, so the amount of times that things were referenced and like in our fob. Our forward operating base there was graffiti of like quotes and scenes of the movie and there's a lot of that kind of stuff and you know it's it's weird because you serve with so many different kinds of people everybody sort of had a different take on it you know um i found a lot of people like myself who were not necessarily understanding what we were doing um to iraq was a little bit more clear than afghanistan i think uh to some degree but just overall like there wasn't a lot of dissemination as far as what's what what's the purpose of this like it, fighting terrorism is so vague like what does that mean um but at you know where where i was on camp camp arifjan in kuwait there was a uh a hospital there and there was always convoy wrecked convoys coming back you know guys just got hit real hard um, there's aspects that reminded me almost identically of the scene in Forrest Gump where he's in the hospital and that's where he learns ping pong and guys are walking around in bandages with missing limbs. Uh, so that was a thing too. Like you, you saw people coming back without limbs and things like that. And like, so the reality for me is being like, oh, there are people leaving this safe zone and they're getting killed. Right. And they're coming back maimed. And some of them 
were, I think, still full of so much trauma that they would be like, their emotions were still so heightened. They'd be like, yeah, you could send me back out. I'll go back out. Like, you know, like a player in the NFL was like, twist his knee all the way around. Like, put me back in coach. It's like, okay, let's let the adrenaline come down first. And then we'll have a conversation about that. But uh, yeah, what was really interesting is my unit specifically, we were part of a multinational force. So every day the uh, Italian operators would come come by and we'd be dropped like we're a glorified taxi in a lot of ways we would go drop them off or uh, a lot of the british guys they were always coming by and the cool part about that was seeing like what everybody's gear was like what kind of weapons are you carrying like what do you guys carry like how do you get prepared for this sort type of mission um so that part was very very cool um and working with other forces like being in the navy the only people i didn't work with was was the air force personally um, because we were on an army base and we were always with Marines because the Marines are a part of the Navy. Um, so getting to work with the army and the Marines so closely and, and a whole bunch of other multinational forces, Australians, the British, like I said, the Italians, um, actually our commander of that task force was an Australian commander. Um, so, so it was really cool. It was a very global eye-opening experience. And, I had turned 21 over there. So it was a dry country and I was already a a graduated alcoholic, I think by that point. Um, So that was tough. I was like, wait a minute, this is now my time to drink and I can't drink. This is dumb. (laughs) Uh, But you know, it is what it is. And um, I got after it at our next port stop for sure. Uh, But, but yeah, it was, um, a lot of different sentiments like, yes, we absolutely have to be here to crush terrorism. And then like, I don't know what we're doing here at all. So everybody, it was a mix of, of all that. And not just from privates, E ones, twos, and threes. It was all officers. Like a lot of people were just like, "Eh, we're just here doing our job. They pay our bills, (laughs) you know, whatever. So. Yeah. It was an interesting perspective. I had a guest. I'm trying to remember who it was now, but they were assigned to a ship I think it was, I'm assuming it was, it must have been Iraq, Um, but they were off the coast and it was during, I think it was the first or second conflict, but there was action and they were, you know, firing at whoever, but their whole war experience was inside a steel container. So we forget there's always different pieces. Some are in the, in the sky, some are under the water, some are on the water. So yes, we have X amount that are actually out there seeing it firsthand. But a lot of other people, you know, the, the, the detachment must have been insane. Like there's a war happening. We're firing things at them, but we're mm-hmm. just floating out here on the ocean. So it's, it's really interesting hearing these different lenses from a civilian who never actually got to serve personally. Yeah, and an interesting point about that is like half of my deployment was spent uh, on land for deployed, but the other half was because we rotated our crews so that I wouldn't like our crews wouldn't be forward deployed to Kuwait for the whole deployment. So we had breaks. One, it gave everybody uh, in country opportunities for, you know, different metals that they were after and, you know, uh, air metals for people that were close to their, uh, you know, to their flight time and stuff. Uh, so there was, there was that, but the times that you were on the flight deck, like, I don't think people understand how crazy a flight deck is. Like I maintain that it is the most, one of the most dangerous places you could possibly work and live in, in the world. Um, to, you have to keep your head on a swivel at all times. It's so loud that the complacency that builds up around this constant hum of jets turning all the time. And, uh, 
the again because it was war it was like 24 hours a day flight schedule like F-18s launching and landing at the same time. And then they'd take a break so that our helicopters could come in and drop supplies and refuel and go. And it was just, it was madness. And part of my job for the avionics stuff was for the flight deck control, our rating, our specific job would have to go and test the uh, identification friend or foe radar antennas on all of the aircraft before they leave, just to make sure that their radio codes were up of the daily, you know, the daily, uh, standard right because they change them you know hourly daily weekly whenever they decide to change them um and the, you know the equipment we use was very outdated so it wouldn't always work and a lot of times pilots just give you a thumbs up because they want to fly away and they don't care if it works or not so <laughs> but but that being said like it puts you on the flight deck longer uh and there was a point i actually personally i got removed from the flight deck for i think a three-day period just because of complacency i remember it was a there were night there was a night op i don't know if this was on our deployment or not but it was an aircraft carrier regardless a nimitz class and we were uh i was down below the catwalk which is where our specific shop was um right under the cat the catapult uh so we had gotten a radio call that one of our aircraft was coming back and it had a basically a it had a malfunction that was like, if we can fix it, it can go. But if it, if they can't fix it, we have to scrub that flight. And whatever the, the mission was, scrubbing the flight was not an option. And I was the supervisor. So I had to go up in the middle of the night and figure this out on the fly. Uh, they didn't shut the aircraft down. They paused all the other flight ops. So like jets were kind of circling, waiting to get their turn to land on me, right? So this is pressure at a 21-year-old um, trying to figure out this gripe. Well, I was good at my job and I did it and I fixed it. The helicopter had landed on the the aft fantail. There's a bunch of different positions that they could land, but it was on the very back of the boat, um, the back of the runway area. So once I fixed the, the gripe and the problem and I got a thumbs up, I just turned and ran from the back, back to the, uh, right behind the giant island that you see sticking up on, a, on an aircraft carrier. I basically made a beeline there. But right in front of that area is where they have the prop planes, the C2s that have that like big disc on the top. Well, they're propellers. You can't see propellers that are spinning at night. You just can't. All right. And then they have a big safety ring of people around it with the yellow wands that sort of let you know, hey, it's like a big, like, you can't miss this. The complacency of doing that job and the op tempo that we're at and the pressure that I was under to get this job, I was so relieved that I got the aircraft fixed and they could take off. I ran right through the safety people, like millimeters, inches from getting chopped into a thousand pieces from this propeller. And I ran and I got to the catwalk before I even got to the ladder. I was like, I go to step down the ladder and, and like a safety boss grabbed me by the life jacket, basically ripped me like off the ladder and dragged me into the flight deck control. And they were all like jaws agape, eyes wide. Like I didn't realize what I had just done, but they watched me do it live and on the television that sort of shows us. So then they replayed it back to me so that I could see what happened. And that was traumatizing to see myself like, what? Like this, I'm inches from not being able to have this conversation. So yeah, it's a, it's a very dangerous place, whether there are people firing at you or not, like 
you know, and the other part is, is you could fall off the boat. If you fall off a boat at night, like, okay, there's safety protocols. Yeah. But it's an ocean. You're probably not going to get found. Um, so it's, it's scary. It's scary out there in the water. It's also beautiful though. You can see the whole universe. You can see the entire universe. Um, it's so bright with a full moon out in the middle of the ocean, even without a full moon, the stars are so the universe is so bright. You can actually see your hand like without light pollution. Like I always wondered, like, how do they cross the planes? Like what if it wasn't a full moon? It's like, oh, well, there's without light pollution. You can actually see, but anyway. Amazing. Well, I mean, thank you again for that perspective. Now, before I go to the transition, just one quick question. When you were doing that role, obviously you're in war, you know, the op-tempo was high. What element of sleep deprivation, if any, contributed to that kind of um, lapse of concentration at that moment? That's that's a tough one. Um, like I said, I'm far enough removed that I don't really remember if that was during a deployment or a workup. Um but sleep deprivation is was huge. Uh, you work on the on underway. It was a standard twelve on twelve off rotation. But if you were a supervisor, you often had to stay longer because there was a lot of changeover, pass down type things. What happened during the day? What what can you expect? You know, might go wrong type of conversations. And a lot of times, you end up working eighteen hour days because you're done with your shift. You're on a boat. Where are you going to go? Are you going to you're not going to go to the club, right? So you just stay in the same room with the people you work with. And maybe you're not going to go up and fix something because you're technically off, but your mind is still like helping the people that are there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I still have this thing where if I get involved in a big like project, I can easily, that part of me that needs to sleep can be switched off. Um Like I anticipated a little bit with 7X, like I probably won't need a lot of sleep during that trip. I'm going to be a mess when I get back though. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I know my body will just immediately find that gear. It's used, it's been there before like muscle memory. Um, but no, that's actually good knowing ahead of time because I, I can plan for how I'm going to recover and kind of take that back. Plus obviously the support team that exists around that, I, that project. Um, but sleep deprivation was an enormous, enormous contributor to pretty much every mistake I made when I was in the military, honestly. Uh, I don't know how there's a solution for that, but. Well, I actually had a guest on John Cordell, who was a Navy captain and towards the end of his career really had that aha moment and was, was trying to push, you know, the, the re, what'd be the right word? The re redefining of, of the shifts and, you know, the, the lengths of shifts, the times of shifts, et cetera, to try and eliminate that. And sadly, it took some of the naval disasters to really kind of back up what he'd been saying for a while. Now, he's transitioned out since, but he still advises in that community, I believe. But I think this is such an important thing. And it's interesting, you know, all these different lenses, it's all, they're all saying the same thing. Like, yes, you know, there's times where we all have to step up, like you said. I mean, if if a, a fob gets attacked, you can't ask the uh, the Afghani's to just you know hold on yeah. for a second. Can I take a nap? And then we'll carry on fighting. You know, yeah, same with I the just wildfire. hit my snooze. Yeah. <laughs> but the rest of the time, what are we doing to maximize the efficiency of our men and women? And it's an important conversation that is only really now truly being understood. Yeah, and, and the the string of incidents that has kind of unfolded with the u.s navy in the past say i don't know 10 years the various different things 
I was shocked at first that that was, that was not the Navy that I knew, like the protocols and the, the way everything was done. But then it started to occur to me is like, but we've been at a high operational tempo. Now the Navy's not directly involved in the Afghanistan war, but they're still participating. Right. So they still are experiencing a high op tempo in that sort of theater. Um, and, and just like uh, you can't, you can't maintain that speed for as long as, American troops have been asked to maintain that speed. Like it's over now, but that was a long 20 years is a long run. It's like 22 years. I don't even know how long it was for the uh, Afghanistan war, but uh, to try to expect people to keep the same op tempo for that long is absolutely, it's insane. It's insanity. It's insane. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing in our first responders still. There's no end to that. And this is the problem. It's one of the reasons why I started this podcast in the first place. All right. Well, then you transition out. I mean, we've spent a lot of time in, you know, in your military career. I know that was only a, a four-year window, um, but you go in as a young man. You know, so many times when people are on here, you know, they, they're somewhat wayward. There may be an absence of rock-solid mentorship early in life. You know, now you find the military, you find position, you find purpose, you identify as a, as a sailor. Then you get to this point, whatever it is, whether you choose to transition out, whether you get hurt, whether you, you know, get dishonorably discharged and you find yourself the other side of this. This can be incredibly jarring for a lot of people, because especially if you grooming someone at 18, that's kind of who they are as an adult. And then all of a sudden they're not. So what was your transition like? And then kind of walk me through the industry you found yourself in eventually. Sure. Um I received an honorable discharge. So I, I did my service, got my good conduct, all that stuff. Uh, it just, just wasn't for me. And I was ready. To, I was ready to really move on. Um, I was stationed in San Diego and it's very expensive to live there. So I had, it wasn't hard, but I convinced a lot of my Buffalo friends to move out to San Diego with me. So we had, you know, a house and like 12 people living in it just to afford it. Uh, so that was probably a positive and a negative. It was a positive in that I had friends that I knew from back home that know me my whole life with me, but that's also the negative and that I couldn't really transform and become something different because um, I was expected to be and behave a certain way. And I was only 21 when I got out. So I was still kind of in that mindset of wanting to belong and, and fit in. And, and I cared what people thought. Uh, so I jumped in when I got out, I jumped right into the the party scene and was like, I missed four years of college. So I'm going to go and party like I'm in college, which is stupid because anybody that's been in the military knows how much drinking is a culture, part of the culture. So it's not like I missed, you know, that kind of party lifestyle, but I missed the carefree aspect of it. So now I'm 21. I did something big and impressive with my life. Uh, I contributed to history in some small way. And I felt like I could just disconnect and I guess retire as dumb as that sounds like that's sort of the mentality I had, which is probably a big result of the lack of a solid mentor in my life. Right. And, uh, you know, the only thing I had in my mind when I was transitioning still active duty, but knew I had weeks left was I want to work at tower records because empire records was one of my favorite movies growing up when I was young. Um, and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to work at a record store. So I applied at Tower Records and that was my dream job. And I, I felt cool when I got hired. I was like, sweet, I can go work at a record store, hang out. And it was awesome. Uh, 
but that gig only lasted like i don't know two months um because at this point it was 2006 and i was working there shortly you know it was a little bit more than minimum wage but i didn't mind working five days a week at the record store so it was like whatever as long as i had money coming in i was gonna be fine well the internet and the first uh the first iphone came out the very next year so like the musical landscape was changing and tower records went bankrupt and shut every location down globally I think they still had an online presence at that time, but all their brick and mortar stores were shut down. And I was working at the flagship store on San Diego Sports Arena Boulevard, right across from the sports arena. It was the flagship Tower Records of Southern California. So they told us, don't worry, your jobs are fine. They'll never close this one. I show up to my shift, it's padlocked, seized by the IRS or something like that. (laughs) I was like, okay, well, now what? Because it was like the middle of the month and now like that was a huge thing like well it wasn't a solid plan but i had a plan at least and now it was pulled out from underneath me and i didn't know what to do so i was like okay well maybe something else will come along and uh there was a lot of sales jobs making a hundred percent commission that wouldn't pay you so i found myself into one of those racketing schemes and i found that the tonal quality of my voice could sell home loans. So I started selling. I went from Tower Records when they bankrupt themselves and had to close them all down to selling subprime mortgages. Okay. I didn't know what mortgages were. I had no idea. I just had a script and there was rebuttal questions for when people say, yeah, but yeah, but this, and how do I refinance that? It, because it was scripted and I just read a script, I was able to sell these loans and didn't realize how much I was contributing to the collapse, the 2008 collapse, right? I, and somewhere along that conversation, I got a hold of some kind of hedge fund manager and he took the time to educate me about what I was doing. And he did it in not a condescending or a rude or how dare you cold call my house kind of tone. He was sincere. And there was something about the tone of his voice where it really made me second guess it. And I quit that day. And he explained like how detrimental this, this whole industry that I was a part of was it's just a stranger. Never met him. Don't even remember his name, but it, he turned out to be right. And I listened to my instincts at that point. Um, you should have asked him for a job. He sounded a great mentor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I think he was somewhere up in San Jose. Uh, but yeah. So once I, I left that industry, I was just kind of like out of gas and I was out of ideas. Uh, I had rent due. A lot of my friends that I was living with eventually moved on to other places or, you know, went to jail or just weren't, you know, great humans <laughs> or, or I guess responsible humans are good people. They're just not super responsible. Um, so yeah, I found myself very, very, uh, very near disaster and at one point i did have no place to live so i spent a couple of weeks couch surfing on various you know friends that i was in the navy with that were still in i was able to stay on some couches there there was a couple of nights i just pulled all-nighters on the beach by the bonfire um and really realized that, like there's that nothing is going to magically happen here but i'm from buffalo and i'm living in san diego so the idea of leaving that you know, to go back to, I'm looking at a four feet of snow out my window right now, you know, like it was a hard jump to make, but I knew that my survival kind of depended on it. 
So I, it was the first moment I had to, as an adult, it was the first time I had to swallow my pride in a big way and go back home um, to my parents, you know, and I, I, I was, I think I was about 22 at that time. And the reason why I decided to come home was a friend of mine had been killed and just a freak accident. And, uh, I went home for his funeral and stuff like that. And when I went home for his funeral, that's when it sort of clicked to me. Like I need to be here. These are where all of my friends and loved ones are, you know, that's just, that just is what it is. So when I moved back to Buffalo at this point, I think it was about 2007, I got out in 2006 and the late 2007, I finally made it back to Buffalo. And that's about the time I, uh, I hooked up with a group of friends. I still have currently to this day, a lot of my former bandmates. Um, one of my former bandmates was like, you should come check out this AmeriCorps program. It's a national service program. You know, we build houses for, you know, under served communities. We build wheelchair access ramps for, through grant money. Um, you know, we do all kinds of training for flood disaster work and just that kind of stuff. And I was so lost and like ashamed because by this point I had been drinking every day and the self-medication to try to, you know, I swallowed my pride to move home and like all the shame I had for being so great and all this responsibility during wartime to not being able to find a job, not being able to pay my bills, not be able to feed myself. Like it was just a mess. I couldn't believe what I had become. But the second and that was still the case even when I started working for AmeriCorps. But when I started helping people that had it worse off than I did and seeing how much of an impact I made on their lives, man, it took me out of my own bullshit so fast. Like that was the most powerful medicine I've ever experienced is service without any expectation in return. Like, you know, cause I wasn't, you got like, we got paid a stipend, but it was less than minimum wage. It was basically like, like wait staff type of stuff without tips. Um, but that wasn't what kept me coming back. Like, and my father had a hard time relating to that. He's like, but they're not paying you for anything. And like, they're making you, you spend all this hours and this and that, and you're helping these kids. They're just they're but they're not paying you anything. It's like, I, I understand where you're getting, where you're coming from, but this is like fueling my soul. And so we had a, the only real disconnect I ever had with my father was through money and during this period. Cause I don't think he saw like how hurt and broken I was, or maybe he did, but since he had no tools, he didn't know how to connect with me on that. So he had a very hands-off, like helpless kind of a approach to me during my hard struggles and stuff, but he never left my corner. Right. He just didn't really know what to do for me. Uh, he would give me, advice that would make sense to people that weren't struggling, right? Well, just, yeah, we'll just go, go back to school and get a job or something easy stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, working for AmeriCorps and, and giving back to people, when I started giving back through service work and helping people, my creative energy started coming back. Like this box that I had put art and music and painting and photography. And while I was in the, in the Navy started opening again, um, and through service and artwork that the healing that came out of those two things was pr so profound. Um, I wish I could bottle it and sell it, you know, or give it away rather. 
I had Sebastian Junger on the show a couple of times, and I think it was it was the first conversation. He talked about the power of national service, and obviously, when you think of that, you think of military service. But mm-hmm. his whole thing was it doesn't have to be military, but you spend you know you should spend a year everyone doing something for your country or community for free. And, you know, the the idea of community, the idea of service and selflessness would be reinforced then. And I think when I look at how a lot of people are portrayed, I don't think it's how people really are. I think most people are really, truly good people. But the mouthpieces of the world are so divisive, so selfless. I mean, even when I was younger, the kind of yuppie mentality, like, I just want to crush all the other businesses and be a, you know, have the monopoly and be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw some Italian tool bag on social media. I don't know why he keeps popping up on mine, but like every video is him driving a different car. And it's just, it's like, that's not important. That's what no. we were all sold when he was a young man, right. probably. And he still believes that fucking bullshit. And he's yeah. made the money, but I would argue how happy is he that he has to post videos of himself the whole time? Probably not. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but, you know, so what would be your, you know, your perception of that philosophy of, of there being a national service, but it doesn't necessarily have to be military service, just service? Um, well, I'm familiar with Sebastian, Sebastian's work. Uh, his book Tribe was fantastic. And I think it's kind of referenced in that book about uh, a lot. He kind of touches on a lot of the, pe- the post-traumatic stress that military members have who didn't see combat have like trying to wrap his head around that like why are they experiencing this this pts sort of symptoms when they didn't exactly you know they were never strafed by an aircraft say uh and his i think he was saying is that it's it's the tribe mentality is that we're you're all kind of there's a baseline of expectation right um somebody's wearing a uniform so they pass the baseline expectation in, in some regard and you can rely on that person at least that much at least to that level right to the level of how squared away their uniform is that's how much you can kind of relate relate or rely on that person but when you get out civilians have never had to really you know from their own choice they never really had to 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 work with other people outside of their own sort of uh wheelhouse right like like growing up in in the suburbs our class was never brought to the inner city to like i, I never knew how the inner city of buffalo was and i it's a, i feel ashamed about that to some degree because it took me until i was in my 20s to actually go in and like holy shit this is they've been living like this the whole time i've been alive like why why is this happening? Like, and then I felt bad that I didn't even know about it. I thought like the suburban problems were the same as the, no different, different worlds. Like there are third world countries in our own cities all across America. And it just like, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to rake somebody's yard, to shovel their driveway, to, to paint their porch. You know, um, I 100% believe that national service should be a mandatory thing um that and and putting like like uh cpr is a basic skill in the school systems but also national service as 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 a thing like there are countries uh, i think again Sebastian younger i think he references it that in israel and other countries that have mandatory military service now this is different that they see way less ptsd reports because at least everybody in in the country has served to some capacity so they know what it's like 
to to have to to have to work together for a common goal. Because in the civilian world, you don't have to work with somebody. Like you should, but you can go get another job. You don't have to work with that person. You don't have that option in service work. And it's it's just like hugely important to get outside of your own what you find familiar, right? I remember the first time I left America, I was in high school. I must have been 17. I went on a class trip to Spain. And this is really dumb, but I thought it was the first thing that blew my mind was that they have different movie stars here. <laughs> they have they have different musical artists here. Like, what is this TV show on daytime TV? Like, who's this? I it's not that I didn't think that that was I just never occurred to me that like I know what I know, and that's what I just assumed everybody knew. So getting outside of your familiar environment is critical to growth because you know, you don't know what you don't know. And as a kid, I just like, it sounds dumb, but it's, you guys don't have the same movie stars. This is crazy. So now that forced me, that was a moment that forced me to remain open pretty much for the rest of my life is being like, okay, well, I don't know what I don't know. So if you say this group of, uh, of people in my own city needs help with X, Y, and Z, it doesn't sound like it makes sense, but let me go there and see with my own eyes, I put my feet on the ground there and then, oh, okay, now I see what you're talking about. So service should, could be a really powerful tool to cure a lot of things. It's, it can develop skills for people. It can, it's a full of mentorship opportunities. Um, just getting connected with everybody glued to their devices and working from home. Like it gets people talking to strangers and developing relationships and networks that you never thought you might have. Like I have a network across the whole country from service work that I didn't get paid for, for just years of working in different projects with different folks that I've been able to maintain those relationships for. And sometimes they come back to to help and serve something that you're working on. And it's, you know, you, you never know. It's You're never going to make a difference sitting in your house though, by yourself. You know, you can make a small difference, but you have to have, you have to have more than you. You need to be working with other people in concert with other humans. Yeah, well, I think it's why it would totally disarm so much of the division that we're seeing at the moment. Oh, the Northerners do this, the Southerners do that, the Democrats, mm -hmm. the Republicans, the pro, the anti-vax, the oh yeah, you know, and it's it's just crazy. And what I found, you know, I travel. I was very very fortunate. I got to travel ever since I was eight years old. I went skiing, and because in England you don't ski. In England you have to go to different countries. So it was Austria right. when I was little with the school and then um you know it progressed to that from there i did a exchange with um one of my mom's ex-boyfriends um he had a kid my age so we did i went to france and stayed with them for a couple of weeks so i kind of got immersed internationally pretty early and then the farm that i grew up in my dad was a vet a veterinary surgeon so we would have everyone from gypsies to royalty and everything in between and that's not a a scale that goes vertically it's 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 uh, horizontal but you got to see all walks of life and you really saw that there was one true prejudice nice people and fucking assholes and that was pretty mm -hmm. much it regardless of their background and so if you saw that and you took away these labels because you were doing this community service and you were maybe from some affluent neighborhood but you were serving in some poor and then all of a sudden you know you look at the rhetoric on you know hookers and gangbangers and you know bums and all these terms that you you know like, wait a second there's a reason why these people are going through some of these things. And I've seen it with my own eyes. It would take away that kind of sensationalism 
that so many of these shitbag politicians rely on this ignorance so they can push their agendas. And what happens when you, especially in the first responder community, you do see that. I'm a farm boy from England, and I worked in some of the the poorest neighborhoods in in America, in in the the West Coast and the East Coast. And there's nothing I ever would have been exposed to had I stayed in the UK. So if someone told me, oh, in America, it's X, Y, and Z, I'd be like, okay. But now, having been there, I'm like, no, you're fucking wrong. You couldn't be more wrong, you know? So I think that's the other element is we'd have to be, we'd be forced to look inward at our own problems and then we wouldn't be able to ignore them. And we'd have to start addressing some of the poverty, the addiction, the obesity. I mean, all these things that we're struggling from. But as you said, or you can hide in your little phone and just pretend nothing else is going on. Meanwhile, you're a keyboard warrior and throwing you know, shade at all these people that you don't even fucking understand. Mm-hmm. 100%, 100% agree with all of that. So you do all this volunteer work this uh, creative spirit is starting to to grow again. So many people stay in a profession because it pays the bills and it comes with health insurance and possibly a pension. Some other people take a leap and do what they truly love, whether it completely pays the bills, whether it pays the bills partly, whether it doesn't at all, but they don't allow the kind of nine to five life to suppress the things that they love. We're, you know, we're together now because you're going to be doing the photography on 7X. As we're walking now, there's your art. I'm sorry, as you're walking, as we're talking, we're not walking. The art is on the camera behind you that I can see. And then you've got your guitar. So how, how, you know, were you able to use that spark um, to kind of really jump back in with both feet on the art side that you love so much? Oh, man, that's, that's, that's a lot. Um, so I, I've tried the nine to five stuff. Um, and I've, I have found that I am the most unhappy and unwell when I'm doing that. Granted, I have the most quote unquote security when I'm doing that. So at this point, up until about a couple, a couple of months ago, I had been full time in construction trades and that's how I pay the bills and feed my family. Uh, however, music and art has never really left those are those are things that never made any money to begin with um but i can't i have to do it and it's one of those things that now my night my the nine to fives are no longer there so i've been able to learn enough skills to work with my hands and so long as i have two hands and i'm healthy i can make money um so i pick up plumbing gigs and uh you know interior finishing gigs for a number of contractors I'd work with throughout the years, when they need help, I can help them. They they pay me. It's good. I do good work for them. I'm reliable. All of that. Um, but there was a period of time when I did first get back and uh, I was doing the AmeriCorps thing. I did spend maybe six years full time as a musician, and that was my full time job. And it was extraordinarily stressful. And it was a hustle and it was a grind. But we did it and we were able to make some money. We were able to, you know, finance a, a a pretty, pretty extraordinary, you know, number of years for ourselves. We were able to go on some tours, play with some really terrific uh, musicians, great um, festivals, stuff like that. A lot of travel, a lot of meeting new people. And uh, that's just like, I have to be doing that. So whatever the, whatever I have to do to, 
be able to create, whether it's music or art or painting, selling prints, um, whatever it takes for me to be able to do that. 80% of my time, my working time, not my like father or parenting time uh, is worth it. So I could be making quite a, I could be making a pretty good living right now. Like my degree is in computer programming. I've always liked, like tech and building stuff and, you know, computer-based solutions. Now there's no shortage in those jobs. There's no shortage in money coming through those veins, but it doesn't serve my soul in any way, shape or form. I don't care about your app. I don't care about your website. You know, <laughs> like I, you can't, there's nothing you could do to get me excited about that. So be, because I think I've experienced a lot of personal death, uh, a lot of personal trauma, I think I have a I, this is, I, I don't want to speak like I have more of an experience than everybody else, but it's my experience that I seem to understand that I'm going to die more than it seems like other people understand they're going to die. Like if you knew you were going to die someday, you would be wasting your life doing nothing. Right. So I know I'm going to die. It's a fact. And be, that scares the shit out of me because I'm not done doing all the stuff I want to do. Right. Like I want to do things. I want to feed my soul. My soul wants to eat. And, uh, you know, my soul wants to eat more than my, my body wants to eat food, right? Like it's just, I have to nourish my soul because at the end of the day, when I'm on my deathbed, I really, the most important thing for me to be able to say is that I have zero regrets and I've done everything I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I can't really rest until I've, I've done those things and not, and none of that is going to be. I'm glad I worked my nine to five job for 40 years and got my pension. Like that is not what I want to say. I don't care about that at all. Um, the only thing that keeps me, uh, honestly working as hard as I am right now currently is because I have young sons looking at me. Right. So I have to instill a work ethic, uh, to some degree, but I'm trying to get them to understand that it's a work ethic of something that I care about. Okay. Like I work hard at developing uh, certain skills um, so that I could be deployed to service related things like through team Rubicon or for wildfires or floods or something. I maintain those sorts of things, extracurricular sort of uh, qualifications that I need. And I've got to be able to, uh, I don't know. The, the point is I, I really just want them to, to be able to know that you could work really hard at something that fuels your soul and to kind of not really worried about owning a monopoly or a string of businesses. Um, my son's like this, he's six. He's like, I want to grow up. I want to be a millionaire. And I always ask him, I say, well, what would you get? Cause we have everything that you would need. We have it right now. Like, what do you want right now that we don't have that you can get with a million dollars? And he never has an answer. He doesn't really have an answer. He just has this like, idea that that's what he's supposed to get and it's not like he doesn't watch tv like a like a, probably like a, he probably watches less tv than the average kid and plays less video games than the average kid and all that stuff so i don't really know where he gets it but he's getting it you know um so so the arts has kind of been a thing to keep me going moving forward staying true to myself and not letting a, a very heavy Another thing you said too is like industry is very, you have to be successful in one path, right? And spend your whole life doing that one thing. I can't even do that in art. Like uh, 
America kind of wants you to be a photographer. They want you to be a musician, a painter. Like you can't be all those things. It's like, well, and this is going to sound terrible, but I only bring it up to drive the point home. Somebody like Michelangelo, he wasn't just a painter. He was a sculptor. He invented, uh, he designed the St. Paul's cathedral ceiling. Like that's a physical structure. So he was an engineer, right? You know, nobody gave him questions. They're like, we want this thing built, hire that guy, or we need this thing painted, hire that guy. Like he's good at all of them. So just hire him. Um, and we've gotten so far away from that. Like humans are naturally curious. We're all good at more than one thing. So I just wish there was a way or a mechanism where people could actually find the things they're good at and, give be given the space and opportunity to develop them and see what they can how they can enrich their soul and their lives with them whether it's woodworking or you know macrame i don't know just anything <laughs> well i think when you look at um you know the way our children are educated in school now and especially my son's generation there they're all aiming at these you know standardized tests that sadly are still there and then you're told right choose choose a path in college you know it's not encouraging them to find this renaissance this you know all these different facets of what makes you in his case ty gearing you know with this the, he loves running he's doing the jrtc program he he's so sweet with animals you know he's all these things but, oh no but do you want to do computer engineering or do you want to do you know pick a pig one and it's like this is the problem is that we're not I don't think our education system, even though there's so many amazing teachers that I've seen just in my school's, uh, my son's school journey up to this point, but this concept that you can be anything is completely suppressed, you know? And then sadly, I mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot. And then they look at, for example, the president of the United States and they're like, well, you know, that used to be an inspirational position where back in the day you had some people that really inspired you now it's like well, i don't want to be that toxic piece of shit left left or right i'm being very specific <laughs> right. every single time like you know so so you know who's inspiring our children to to you know follow their path in science but also don't forget that you love to dance or you love and this is what makes you but if you look at the the kind of history of education which i'm not super well versed on but a lot of people that are have said the same thing it was really kind of changed to start designing to to train obedient humans to work in factories. And that kind of lineage yeah. is still there. So we we suppressed, and you see, you know, they literally do financially suppress the arts, you know, physical education, all these things that make a person whole to just say, all right, go and, you know, go and write, you know, prog you know go program a computer or go you know, work on an assembly line or whatever it is. And and so, yeah, I agree with you 100%. We miss the fact that we are this beautiful tapestry of all these things that make us, uh, you know, the whole being. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's there's no way, and, and you're right, that, like we were talking about, we started this with the Rust Belt cities and, and the steel plant in my town. And the education system that we have today is built on that era. Like they needed people to be able to show up on time and to be able to do, you know, basic arithmetic, you know, and make basic measurements and uh, regurgitate some, some facts and some knowledge just to get the machines working and the industry continuing. And, and now fast forwarding it's uh, well, if you can't serve national security or cybersecurity in some way or help America leverage itself to stay a superpower, art has no place in any of those 
positions. Like, so why would you spend any money into that? And um, it misses, then what, what are we fighting for? Right. That, that's not, I mean, somebody else way smarter than me has said something similar to that. But if we take these programs out of our school and start making the cookie cutter system even worse, uh, you know, we're going to lose all day um, in the long run, as far as maintaining a, a position of, I don't want to say superiority, but it, America really is one of the better places I've ever experienced living life. Uh, it's got its fair share of issues, but it really is awesome here. <laughs> All things considered, uh, it could de- definitely use improvement. Um, but yeah, going, going back to my own kids, that that's why I really drive home that you can be anything and you could be good at a lot of different things. And we, both my ex-wife and I really remind them that it's, it's really about, uh, what, what, what makes you happy? You know, like, because at the end of the day, we don't know how long we got. So why would you waste your time on crunching numbers? If you hate crunching numbers, don't do it. You know, don't do it because it's going to get you, uh, into a a better financial position, right? Uh, Don't let the fear of financial insecurity hold you back from what ultimately can provide a better quality of life for, for your soul. Obviously, we need to make you. We need to make money. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not just an artist. I don't just get by on this stuff. Like, I work with my hands. You know, I've shown up to gigs, you know, with cuts on both my fingers, and I play bass and having to sh- be a bloody mess. But that's because I cut my a finger on a nail earlier in the day. But I still had a gig that night. You know, I couldn't let the band down. So, um, at this point, I will work a little extra hard or extra hours if it means getting my art in and getting that in, uh, entropic principle, like out, like getting everything that's in built up in my body and let it releasing it into a, a different form, you know, getting it in a more disordered state out of my body. Well, speaking of outlets, um, you and I are about to embark in a pretty epic adventure. Um, it all yes. circles back to Ryan Parrott, the roommate that you had in, in in your very first naval experience. So, talk to me about how you kind of ooh, just touch my microphone. Then talk to me about how you refound each other, and then walk me through Seven X through your eyes. Sure. Um, we actually lost touch. Uh, I think probably around Christmas time, two thousand four. I deployed. January 17th, 2005. And I think he deployed somewhere around the same time. Both of us went uh, overseas in 2005. Obviously he was with a very different unit. And that being the case, we lost touch. So when he went on deployment, like those guys can't have, he was part of the SEAL teams. So he couldn't have his his phone on and all that. Um, Phones were very primitive at the time anyways. Um, So we kind of lost touch. I figured that was going to happen. We talked about it too. Like if he did, it would be, you know, you kind of lose. There's a lot of mystery around it before you're a seal. Like I was kind of with him and he's going through it. So we weren't, I wasn't sure if, okay, do you just disappear from the face of the earth and you're like a spook now? And like, you know, we never hear from you again. I don't know how that works. Are you Jason Bourne? We'll see. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it really was the case in that his life in that kind of operational tempo, it, it, I kind of understood like your life becomes the the people that you're with every single day. And, you know, I understood that, but I was always checking like, 
you know, a team of seals killed in helicopter crash, like I would be scouring the newspapers all the time, like just making sure, double checking. And I would Google stuff from time to time every other year. So I would kind of try to find him. And then eventually I found one of these random times I Googled him. I found his book, uh, Sons of the Flag. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. So he's alive. That's great. So that's how I knew. Um, and then I found his contact through the publisher or whatever. And I just sent him an email and I didn't hear from him for a while, probably maybe a year, maybe eight months or something. It was probably closer to a year, but I got a phone call from a 619 area code, which I knew was San Diego. And when I get cold called from robocallers, it's never from San Diego. So I was like, some, this is weird. Just one of those things. And intuition was like, you need to answer this call. So I answer the call and I hear, is this Matt Crane? I knew his voice immediately. I was like, yeah, who is this? He said, this is Ryan Parrott. I exploded with so much joy. Like it was, it was a super awesome moment for me. It made me really happy to hear his voice. And uh, yeah, it was just from that time. He just talked for a little bit, caught up. Uh, he let me know like how long he served, where he served, uh, when he got out. Sort of a little bit about his transition of getting out and going to get this job in Dallas. And that fell through. So he was in a similar place from military to civilian. Now he didn't know what to do because he was jobless. So that was comforting to me because as somebody who didn't serve, like, you know, who wasn't in a gunfight every other day, it, a lot of times would make me question my own, the validity of my, my own service. And then like, well, why is it so hard for me? I didn't, I don't have all these, you know, all this baggage. Uh, but then I realized, oh, this big, tough Navy SEAL, it was hard for him to readjust to civilian life too. So I was like, okay, that was a big moment for me, honestly, because um, there's not a lot of veterans in my life. Uh, so that was that was awesome. But that was a couple of years, maybe two years ago. So we stayed in contact maybe once a month. We'd kind of catch up briefly. And then at one point, he started talking about this crazy idea he had had about the 7X project. And I was like, oh, just remembering the conversation we had when I first met him, the very first words out of his mouth was I was going to be a Navy SEAL. And he went and did that. So when he told me he was going to do this, you know, I knew he was going to do it and he he will do it. This will happen because Ryan Parrott is behind it. Uh, and um, it was just something that was very near and dear to me. He told me the story about David, Matt Calf, his his partner who took his life. And then I shared the story of my younger brother, who was an army veteran who took his life. And we just sort of connected on the, we have to do something front. Like, okay, we're not the only two people affected by veteran suicides, but like what's being done. And the what's being done thing was a big, a big connection point for us. And it was really just like, well, whatever you need me to do, I will do it. You know? And, and here's, here's a list of things I could do. I can, uh, helping this amount of this, this way, this way, or this way. And you just let me know, Hey man, you don't, you don't need to send me your resume. You're on the team. Don't even worry about it. Like, and uh, yeah, that was that. And that's going to be an amazing experience. It is. So, so you're taking again, some of the art that we talked about and applying it as project. So what's your role on this mission? So the role on the mission is it's kind of, it's very different than any other kind of gig like this in that usually there's a, you know, a, a shot list. Like there's 
we want to see these. These are the photographs we want to see. I've so far been given a lot of freedom. I've even asked him a number of times, like, what, what are the expectations here? Um, but I initially told Ryan that, I, you know, I don't want to cover it like a, like a documentary photographer. Uh, I'm going to inject a great deal of art into it. Um, Werner Herzog is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, and his documentaries especially really stand out. And uh, I like the way he tells a story, Werner Herzog. Like he's not interested in the facts. He's interested in the truth, which are, they're different, right? Facts are boring and they are what, what they are. But the truth is very mysterious and there's a great deal of mystery and magic and supernatural kind of involved in the truth. And trying to capture those things are my goal for, for 7X. I'm really interested in, you know, there's going to be ex- like the skydiving. Those are going to be exciting shots and the the struggle of running and uncomfortable positions and stuff. But I'm really interested in the human component of it and each team member and the, the search, like ever we're all going along on this journey and we're all a part of this mission because for one reason or another, it resonates with us. So I'm interested in capturing that from each sort of individual on the team, like the, the search for meaning, the search for meaning in all of this chaos of life, the individual search, but also a collective search. And it does, we don't have to find anything at the end, but it's a, it's about the process and it's about, the intention behind it, the intention and the motivation behind it is very powerful. Um, and action is ultimately how things are solved. And talking about something is one thing, but we have to do something, you know? And I don't know if this is the, something that we have to do, but uh, I think through my lens and doing a bit of storytelling, I, there's a profound narrative here. There's a profound opportunity to, uh, engage a wider discussion on the topic absolutely i think this is the problem is is there's been a lot of very shallow messaging with this topic i mean 22 push-ups perfect example so it's a it's clickbait you know mindless you know uh totally that's a fact yeah it's a fact not the not the truth right that's the fact of the situation that's not the truth yeah actually i had someone just had uh michael hicks on whose son took his own life he was in the navy um and uh in a conversation i heard on another podcast with him the host said supposedly if you actually bring in active duty because we're talking about veterans 22 it's Mm -hmm. that's actually 30 a day we think it was eleven thousand a year something like that so anyway an insane number of people that are taking their own lives that serve this country yeah um but i think this is the problem is you've got this messaging you've got you know people telling their own powerful mental health story which is absolutely essential but you haven't got all these pieces coming together whereas in this particular manual in the docuseries is going to come out of this you're going to have people from physical therapy nutrition neuroscience i mean all these different areas bringing their piece of the pie together so that you can actually make a complete story because i see this over and over again with the mental health conversation and 
my uh, community is a perfect example. Oh, it's what you see. You had that baby in that car. You had this, you had that. Well, there's no talk of childhood trauma or sleep deprivation or psychiatric meds or alcohol or relationships or organizational betrayal, all these little pieces that all create this perfect storm of mental ill health that leads our men and women to take their own lives or an 18-year-old kid to walk into a school with a gun. You know, So if we're not having this holistic conversation, which is what we're going to be chasing during this 7x project we're never ever going to get to the root of the problem absolutely um yeah and i and i feel i feel uniquely qualified uh to help to help tell this story um and i'm very grateful um i'm not super religious but i can't help to think that there's not a a higher power or a god on my side putting me in into this position to to do this um you know, we everybody on this team has an incredible, unique set of skills, and they're not one dimensional. Like, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's out this way, uh, kind of like you were saying before. And I think we have a huge opportunity here with a collection of individuals that we have to, to really make a, a profound difference. Um, and I don't know what that looks like yet. Like I'm trying to be very careful and not, I'm not pre-planning any kind of images in my mind or anything like that because uh, this is something that needs to be revealed through the mystery of the process, I believe. Um, and I, I very much look forward to, to the challenge because uh, it's not, there's one way to approach this from a photographer standpoint, and that's to, you know, get all the exciting action shots that, you know, could sell sneakers or sell running equipment or parachutes or stuff like that. Like, I, I don't, I'm sure that's what some people are expecting. That's not what I'm going to deliver. I'll say this right now. That's not what I'm going to deliver. Uh, there will be some of that, but I, I'm really interested in the truth and finding a some window, a way into this problem. Like right now we know there's this problem, but we, there's not even a way into it. So for me, I'm going to kind of, as an analogy, use my lens to scour the team, the event, the mission, and find a window into the inside of this problem so that we can start really identifying uh, some some of the stress fractures. Beautiful. Well, for people listening, they can follow 7X, I think it's at 7x.project on Instagram and then americanextreme.com on the website. If you go to projects, you'll see Human Performance Project there. I want to throw a couple of quick questions, closing questions at you before I let you go, if that's okay. I know I've been chatting yeah, for sure. almost two hours now. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. So I read a lot of uh I read a lot of nonfiction. Um I'm a big science nerd. <laughs> um I could recommend it's off topic. I can recommend a book by Sean Carroll called Something Deeply Hidden. Now, this is not a light read and it's pretty specific. It's it's kind of he's a Sean Carroll is a physicist, right? And he kind of studies the universe and um, quantum physics, cosmology, everything in between. He's very well-versed. Um, but he's sort of an Hugh Everett sort of disciple, which is another physicist who has this one world sort of theory. Um, 
it's very heady, but it, if you have an open mind and can take um, complicated subject matter like that slowly and allow yourself to digest it, it could really change your, especially for creative types out there, it could really open your mind up to different possibilities. Um, and it should, because it's, you know, it's talking about the the quantum and the unseen and the very fundamental nature of reality that we understand, like the very, the very boundaries of what we know. Um, and, and for me, forcing my plate, my, my mind into those types of places is wildly uncomfortable. It's challenging, but it, it further opens my mind up to new possibilities. Like I said, when I was 16 and went to Spain and I didn't realize that pop stars were different over there, like reading uh, books like that. And Sean Carroll has a number of them as well. Um, you know, I, I, it's kind of embarrassing. I feel embarrassed even recommending it because it's a super nerd book, but it's uh it's fantastic. I couldn't put it down. Um, yeah. Other than that fiction, the old man in the sea, Ernest Hemingway. That's a classic. If you don't know that one, you can read it in an afternoon. You know, it's, it's like a number one or number two hit of Hemingway's, but it's, it's classic for a reason. Beautiful. Well, what about a documentary and or movie that you love? Uh, Werner Herzog actually has a relatively new one. It's on Netflix. It's called Nomad. Uh, And it's about him and his relationship with a a writer friend of his who passed away in the 80s. Some of their journeys and how they've connected and really it's fantastic. Any, anything that guy does, I love. Uh, but that's a wonderful documentary. And as far as films go, I'm a big Quentin Tarantino fan. So his film, him, so films are on repeat in my house. Beautiful. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes. My friend, Whitney Lindsay. She is a army veteran. She flew Apaches. We've also um, rolled out on a Team Rubicon fire together. So she does um, fire first responder stuff now. And right now she's heavy in training. She's a, a CrossFit and tactical athlete. So she's doing a lot of those types of types of games and things like that. Um, she's an interesting person. She probably really have, have a lot to tell. And I, I don't know that, I don't know that much about her as far as her, how, like how you're great at interviewing. So it would be, it would be good to know more about her background through a, a proper, proper podcast. Beautiful. Let's make it happen. She sounds amazing. So thank you. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you and your work online, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Um, Hiking. I like to wander the woods kind of without any, without my camera, just kind of aimlessly with my dog. I have an English bulldog. She's 12 right now. She's snoring. You might be able to hear her. I think I heard her earlier. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she doesn't, she's not as mobile as she used to be, but um, I like to, I like to walk. Walking is a great decompressing tool for me. And it's not, you know, I, I work out and I exercise, but that's not, decompressing it for me i'm not going to lie to you and tell you that that centers me i hate it it's miserable but i do it because <laughs> i'm supposed to okay that's the truth of it but walking i enjoy and walking through the woods even more so like hearing hearing the trees 
the breeze through tree branches, whether they have leaves on them or not. That's a sound that really, really recenters me every single time. And the smell of mud or earth, like those two things together every time without fail. Beautiful. Yeah. My decompressor, I walk my dog a lot. I leave my phone in the house. Um, huge. Mm. And I agree with you completely. I'll do a workout physically. I feel, um, you know, like stress has gone within my actual physicality. But mentally, it's not. I agree 100%. I'm not like, oh, I'm in a happy place now. The <laughs> yeah. same with jujitsu. Like, I'm thinking the whole drive home, I just got murdered and had to tap 1,400 times. Why do I suck? <laughs> so I'm not really in that great, great space. But the walking, but also my back garden, my two neighbors have palm trees. So when we have a breeze here, it's, you know, I, they, their fronds fall in my yard all the time and I could be a grumpy old fart. But I don't mind because the sound of the wind in their trees is absolutely centering. So I, I understand completely what you're saying. So for people listening, um, where can they find you online? And then are there any places on social media? Sure. Um, my website is www.matthew with two T's crane studios.com. And I have an Instagram handle. It's at Matthew crane studios. So fairly easy and pretty across the board there. Uh, I have some music out there as well. Um, Spotify, iTunes, all that stuff, um, under Matt Crane or the Albrights. There's a, there's a bunch of music out there. Uh, that stuff will all be on my website right now. I'm not sure when this will air, but it's literally being rebuilt as we speak. I'm putting a, a store up attaching a store to it. Like a lot of that stuff behind me are test prints. So I, print them out, take them down, compare them and stuff like that. Once I get all that dialed in, you'll be able to order prints from my website and I'll ship them to you at home because large scale oil paintings are not always affordable. So I want to make art for everybody. So I'll, I will have prints available of some of the big stuff. Brilliant. Well, Matt, I want to say thank you. Like I said, we've been chatting for two hours. We've been all over the place. You know, some people, they've done you know lots of podcasts and have a significant online presence so i learned a lot about them kind of you know signpost some of the questions with yourself we chatted you know in person i think in dallas and then over the phone recently but i didn't really know where this was going to go so you know again some of the rabbit holes some of the you know the the stories and reflections have been invaluable you know whether it was the four years in the, in uniform or pre or post so I'm really excited to to stand in Atlanta Airport with you in less than three weeks' time. Um, and going to be good. Yeah, so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure and a joy, and hopefully we can make an impact. Yeah.